The Leylines Volume 3 Kickstarter has launched, and we're off to a fantastic start, but we need your help to get to the finish line. Become a backer by going to kickstarter.com and searching for Leylines in Print Volume 3, or use the link in the show notes below. Thank you so much for your support. Hello and welcome. I'm Robin Childs. I'm Corey Childs. And I'm Matt Parker. Together we form the MoCo Expedition, three good friends exploring the mysteries of storytelling craft. You may be familiar with Pixar's 22 Rules of Storytelling. As part of an ongoing series, every other episode we'll be exploring one of these 22 rules. You'll hear our connections, objections, exceptions, examples, and things you might not have considered when you first sat down to apply these principles. On today's episode, simplify, focus, combine characters, hop over detours. You'll feel like you're losing valuable stuff, but it sets you free. So grab your writing notebook, put on your best adventurer's cap, and welcome to the MoCo Expedition. Earlier we were talking about kind of when you edit, you want to take a look back and see kind of what what fits the theme, what helps tell the story, and what doesn't, and cut anything that doesn't. And uh, back when when Robin and I were judging our OCT, our original character tournament, one thing that we uh, noticed was a lot of the people who would uh, compete, who would who would tell stories for us, and we would judge, um, lacked something that we ended up calling economy of language, and that's just the idea that. Um, do, does any th- written thing on the page forward the plot, the characters, or uh, reveal anything about the theme? And something that we came to the conclusion of is, if it's not doing any of those things, you need to cut it entirely. And we got to the point where it was kind of like, uh, the, the really, really good competitors would hit two or all three of those things in a single uh, sentence line of dialogue, whatever. And it strikes me that this is also applicable to characters. So if you have an economy of language where these, uh, this dialogue, this prose, whether or not it serves a purpose or two or three purposes, the same has to hold true for characters. Does each character in your narrative hold uh, a place where they can serve either uh, their own characterization or the characterization of another character? Uh, for the plot, or reinforce or contrast your theme. So I think that's where uh, my mind immediately goes. What I thought of when I read this was there is a great letter that David Mamet wrote to the uh, the writers of the TV show The Unit. Yes, yes, I have this saved on my desktop. It's it's brilliant, and if you've never seen it, you can find the whole letter, uh, and it's basically contrasting the difference between the expositional scenes that he claims the suits, the penguins, uh, i.e. the network, think that writers should write, and the actual dramatic scenes that writers have to write. And so he said the best, most relevant part to me... I, I, I've I'll, got the whole thing here. We could read it out loud if you'd like. It's long. I was just going to redact yeah, yeah, please. part of it. And... uh So we, the writers, must ask ourselves of every scene these three questions. Who wants what? What happens if uh, they don't get it? And why now? The answers to these questions are litmus paper. Apply them and their answer will tell you if the scene is 
dramatic or not. There is no magic fairy dust, which will make a boring, useless, redundant, or merely informative scene after it leaves your typewriter. You, the writers, are in in charge of making sure every scene is dramatic. For me, the uh, the character one is the one I've been thinking about the most lately, because um, when I started Ley Lines, I didn't, I wasn't thinking at all in these terms, and I just kept adding characters. Um, they sort of, as fiction kind of tends to do, introduced themselves, and I went, well, yeah, of course, of course, you'd be there. Um, but as I've gone on, I've realized that it's becoming a big struggle to find purpose for some of these characters. And there are others um, that I fully intended to have that now I'm realizing I really don't need to have them. I need to have, you know, maybe the piece that, of or the arc that they were representing. But um, I have so many different cast members already as it is that adding more and adding more and adding more... Um, sort of willy-nilly, or adding adding one that only interacts with one character. Um, the one I'm thinking of specifically, uh, there was a character I was going to introduce specifically to interact with Paku. And Paku is also one of these characters that retroactively I'd probably remove, even though everybody loves him, um, because he's not really related to the main plot, and as a result, he always introduces this sort of unfocused element. Um, but her name was Anna, and she just... She's been a trouble character from the beginning because she keeps changing and re- being redefined and not quite fitting. And it's like something that doesn't quite click with her. And I realized that I could remove Anna from the plot entirely and just l- take a look at my existing cast and bring out all the things I wanted to bring out in Paku with the characters that I've already introduced that already have a need to be further characterized and fleshed out. And so realizing that actually opened up the the uh prospects for me on what I could do so rather than narrowing it because I was losing a cast member it actually like the rule says it very much was a feeling of setting setting myself free from sort of this uh one more character to wrangle problem well and we discussed it in a piece that I'm submitting for a contest, which, since they're pretty stringent about the rules, I'm going to keep it intentionally vague. Um, If I win, you'll all be able to read it online. Um, I submitted the... Well, I asked Robin if she would read over the short story that I'm uh, submitting to this contest, and one of the things that came back was that I could restructure a scene to remove a character who was only there for expositional and world-building purposes that did not effectively use my word count, and by moving all of the information he had to give to one of my main characters, it still very plausibly set up the rest of the story and made it a lot trimmer and a lot more focused. And it hurt a little bit because, you know, I like these characters. It's a world that I'm creating that I know, but in retrospect, it was absolutely right. It is a better story because I cut this, albeit interesting and vital to the world, character. 
That's an interesting point. Um, one of the topics I kind of wanted to bring up on this is what are the signs that a character needs to be uh, consolidated, squashed into another character? And the big one that I had thought of before was do they only serve one purpose? Do they only do one thing in your plot? So uh, what do you guys think about what are the other signs that a character needs to be scooshed? If everything they have to say or accomplish could just as easily be done by another character. Even if they're doing multiple things, like holding up world building and delivering exposition or even actions, if one of your already established characters can do it and there is no appreciable difference in the plot, the character needs to go. That's a good one. I'm, uh, I, I mean, for me, the biggest one was just realizing that they were only there for one purpose. Um, and I think maybe another element is, uh, or at least sign is if it's, if they are way too tied to your world building and they're not tied enough to your central cast and your central questions. Cause so like, Anna, Anna, most of her purpose was to explore different pieces of the world. And she's been through so many incarnations. The first one was to explore kind of the history of slavery in the Pomeroo environment and sort of what it means now after emancipation and the relative falseness of, of this world that, you know, gives sort of lip service to the idea of freedom but isn't actually there and... Then when that didn't work, I tied her into uh, Momoru's spy network and had her have like this whole thing with this completely minor character that, like, it essentially is. I she was tied to, she had no ties to the central cast at all, um, and all of her ties and all of her purposes wasn't to express anything important about her life or her story. It was all to just highlight different aspects of this world that I'd spent all this time creating. But just like all the stuff that I put in the appendix does not belong in the central book because it bogs it down, a character that essentially just is an appendix vehicle also does not matter. So she was kind of a cipher, uh, a mouthpiece for the For, for the, the world. world itself almost, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, the one I came up with is uh, a kind of a bit of a, a litmus test, which is describe your character, and uh, can you describe them beyond what they look like and what they do? And I think that's a really, really big one. If they're coming in and they're just doing a thing, that's not good. If you can, can't describe them beyond the cool clothes they wear, you've got a problem. Or, you know, their, their bitchin' scar, or their, their, their eye patch or whatever. That's that's usually a bad sign. That's, that's kind of Mary Sue territory, so I guess that would be a good uh, uh, warning sign, too. If you've got a Mary Sue, you probably... It, it doesn't mean that character needs to be completely gone, but they could probably be better served by being scooshed into another character. It's a rare work that can survive a really blatant Mary Sue, although it's not on, on our ongoing theme of we're not telling you the rules, it's not impossible. I really like, although I seem to remember Robin despising it, I've really enjoyed the King Killer Chronicles, and the main character there is a giant Mary Sue. <sighs> I was but just on, gonna... Go ahead. But on purpose. And I feel like the story is building up toward the third book where he's going to have the Mary Sue 
beaten right out of him. Um, but I also understand why uh, it, it's not everyone's cup of tea. But I feel that's a series that can survive with it, but very few series is. I, uh, I just, I've heard some very compelling arguments that, that uh, make it pretty convincing that Batman is a Mary Sue, James Bond is a Mary Sue. Sherlock Holmes. Like, Sherlock Holmes is a Mary Sue. Like, See, and I don't know if of- I agree with you on the idea that Mary Sues cannot survive. <laughs> I think in a lot of ways we can adore Mary Sues if they're not women. But that's a whole other issue. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> uh, see, and I'd say that Batman and Sherlock Holmes and James Bond, it depends on the portrayal. And one of the things about those iconic characters is that they have had so many different portrayals that you can point to instances where they are a Mary Sue and you can point to instances where they're not a Mary Sue. Um, Cause I can definitely remember Batman failing and facing adversity and dealing with the consequences of his actions and instances where Sherlock Holmes, it, it doesn't fit into the Mary Sue because he is so isolated by being so much more intelligent than everybody else that it really does give it that balance. I remember the great that there the second Sherlock Holmes movie is not as good as the first, the uh Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movies, mm-hmm. but the scene where he is sitting in the restaurant and just so disconnected and overwhelmed by the input of all of this knowledge he can gain from everybody by just looking at them and how it isolates him I thought was a a brilliant depiction of Sherlock Holmes and why he isn't on the whole a Mary Sue I'm pretty sure that scene's in the first film is it in the first film or the second film it's in the first one because he's waiting for Watson and his fiance oh no you're right See, I was gi- I was giving credit to the second film for having a great scene and it turns out it was in the better movie well, there's a reason it's the better movie. All along. Um, but I, I take your point there. Um, I, I will quibble a bit. There, There's that angsty Sue bit where it's, oh, well, it's okay because he's so tormented by how awesome he is that that he's really not a Mary Sue. Like, But that's a fantasy, too. Uh, particularly when you're a teenager and no one understands you and you feel all these powerful feelings for the first time. It's, it's really easy to kind of uh, relate to a character like that who was misunderstood for being totally awesome, but you as the reader relate, and and you're kind of like, well, yeah, I'm I'm totally alone for being awesome, despite the fact that you are being that person who would ad- admire them, and being the reader, yeah. that's everybody who reads it. <laughs> but so. on the whole, I think what it ultimately comes down to is objectively, if it's a it's a Mary Sue, if if the tormented by awesome you would still want to be that character. And I don't honestly look at Batman and say, I want to be Batman because that bundle of neuroses and when he, when he's portrayed at the best, when he's portrayed as really being amazing, but essentially not a complete functioning human being, is when you look at him and go, no, I don't want the money, I don't want the ninja, because it comes with this void inside of you that you are trying to fill 
with violence and 12-year-old boys. <laughs> I, I knew you were going to go somewhere with that. Well, well that's terrifying. And, but, and the same with Sherlock Holmes and the same with uh, James Bond. Again, when they're done right. When it's not the campy versions, but it's the versions that look at what is the real human and emotional cost of being able to tell when everyone is lying and being incapable of 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 dis- tolerating deception or what is it really like when your entire world is killing for your government and and you have no permanent contacts it's all fleeting one night stands yeah it looks great when it's all martinis and hot girls but when it's taking those moments of real isolation and emptiness, you don't look at James Bond and say, I want that. You want the car and you want the laser watch and you want the hot girl, but you don't want to be James Bond. I think we could probably do an entire episode on talking about what a Mary Sue is. Cause I think that the term itself is evolving and I think it's, Personally, I, I don't like using the term at all because I feel like it's thrown around way too often. And you can still have a dynamite character that has a lot of Mary Sue-ish qualities. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, um, I don't know if that's really the here well, it's or not, there. It's the also not the topic. this episode, yeah. Yes. So I'm just saying we, we should probably come back here because I think there's stuff to talk about. But... Damn, and I have this awesome segue about Nicholas Angel from Hot Fuzz. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> um, back on topic. Um, I think uh, uh, a recent film that's actually done this really, really well where they took a took two characters that were going to be very, very different, squashed them together, and it was a success, was uh, Frozen. In as much as the original uh, Ice Queen character was going to be a villain and opposed to... Uh, Opposed to the main princess, and there was there were just going to be enemies, basically. And then the idea of uh, combining the, a a supporting character for the princess as a sister, an older sister who is actually the queen, and this uh, this antagonistic force, I guess, in 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 her uh, powers together, I think really kind of refocused the story and gave it a better twist than it would have had otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I think that there were problems with Frozen, but I. I do agree with you that, that that probably gave them the success that they had with it. Because it gave it a core that a lot of people could respect and relate to. Well, and I think this is an interesting one because a lot of it, in the best examples of it, we don't know that it happened. Yeah. Because we don't see, for the most part, the first drafts where, you know, in the Matrix, there are three Neos. Right. Or, you know, in Gravity, there's an entire football team in space. In space. I, I'd watch that. I would, too. Uh, I'm not even that into football, and I'd watch that. Out of an entirely different reason than I want to watch Gravity. Right. It but, would yeah. detract from the story you were trying to tell. <laughs> um, it, but yeah, so the the best examples where people have followed this, we don't see. So what are some of the bad examples that we can think of, either for characters or remembering it can be anything? 
yeah, it characters, be... detours, padding, filler. Yeah, what's what's a good story that bombed on this? And I was like, man, you should well, cut him or her. I really, I hate to bring it up every time, but it's <laughs> go for it. Fourteen books and million and like a million words, so I don't feel bad because there's a lot there. The Wheel of Time is fourteen books, and if I'm generous. It's eight books of actual relevant plot. Maybe nine. And so a lot of, in in some of the later books especially, you just look at them and go, what the hell are you still doing here? The world is ending. Get your stuff together. I remember there was one book where a main character's wife is kidnapped and it's like book eight when this happens and by the end of the book she's not back and you look at it and you go you're eight books into your trilogy slash pentology slash who the hell knows why are you introducing more side quests now yeah and it's there's a summation of some of the later books um, where the characters all sum up where they are in the story, and it's I'm going to escape the pursuing uh, the people pursuing me, but that will have to wait until the next book. I'm going to rescue my wife, but that'll have to wait until the next book. I'm going to take the throne, but that'll have to wait until the next book. I'm going to start doing things, but that'll have to wait until the next book. Huh. The thing you were talking about that where you're introducing characters who are kind of go nowhere, I think a lot of television shows have this in mind where they have a character that they're going to try to push and they just don't work out. And I think this is the reason. It's because the, the, the only reason that they're there is either a producer was like, this is what's in, or a writer thought it was a really cool idea for a thing for them to do but didn't have anything beyond that. Um, I'm thinking that silly pilot character they had in... Uh, Battle, Battle on, on five. 5 for a season. And it's not who even was, a season. He's in six episodes. Yeah, who was forced on uh, forced on J. Michael Straczynski. Yeah. Um, and they, I mean, they killed him off. They did the right thing at the end of the season, and they did as well as they could with it, but it, it was it's definitely one of those characters where you're like, what are they doing here? And I think this is why. If, if, if like, like, I think the most important care, uh, thing moment he had um, was his death, actually which was he's the first person to actually see a shadow vessel and kind of does the thing to report it in before he gets nuked, I guess, by it. Yeah, but and that, that could Anybody could have done that. Yeah, anybody could have done that, and it could have been done a lot better by other people. Right. That does make me kind of wonder what... Let's say you end up with a character. Sometimes, like, this is this is the situation I'm in with, with Paku and Warren and Renar and, like, all these extra characters that I've added in that, that if I had, you know, if I was doing this as a second draft, I would probably remove um, just to give the story more focus. So you're stuck with a character now. You know, you've, you've, you've published books or you've, you've run a television series with these characters in them. How do you reclaim these characters? How do you refocus a character or a situation or something like that to take back the control 
of the situation. I think I've actually seen you do this. Um, Shades of Grey, back your first webcomic project, was actually uh, really, really uh, good about this. Is You introduced a lot of different characters. Uh, 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 Bells and Bows, uh, Pain and Despair. Um, oh, those angsty high school... Yeah, but they came back, like, two yeah. or three times, and had something to do. And, and they had enough character that it wasn't just, I show up and do this thing. There was actual, you know reason for them to be there, and I thought it worked out really, really well. So, I actually I'm not worried about characters like Paku, Warren, Renar, uh, even Korval in your, uh, in Ley Lines, because I know you're going to do something with them. Yeah, but that's my, my point is, is, my question is, how do you, so you, so you realize that you've got a character that you don't need, but you can't realistically just chop them out of the plot without leaving an empty hole where they were. How do you reclaim, on your own terms, a character or a situation and make it so that instead of having to refocus and chop them out, you, they become part of your focusing process. That's well, I, go on, it's, man. It's, it's not always possible and it depends on the person, the character rather, and the situation involved. I think if you can give them something to own that makes sense for them, then you can rehabilitate them into the story if there is something that they can serve that nobody else can serve as well. Even if it's something that comes up later, you put them on the bus um, and we haven't seen them in two years, but then, hey, this was actually kind of relevant to who they are, so they come back. I, th I think that's the only real way to do it is to give them something to own. And if there's not anything for them to own just in as gracefully uh, as graceful a way as possible get them out that's yeah um i i feel like both of you are kind of putting the cart before the horse here which is really strange um in answer to your question robin i think the the, the premise of your question is flawed if okay. if there's a character who's not working uh don't force them in actually you can't force them back in because the moment you're forcing a character you're screwing up this rule um my thought is and again this is something you've done i feel is you wait for them to come back to you if it's not right for them to be in the plot right now that's okay i know people love paku but they'll wait for him and if you force him in he'll be something he wasn't before he won't be himself and and the fans won't like that and you won't like that. Yeah. So the but idea is you wait for them, for something to come up where you're like, man, I, because there's always going to be something for somebody to do. You know, there's always going to be another character, another foil who is challenging your hero or is presenting this uh, question, this quandary, whatever it is, who's creating the conflict in your story or is at least part of the conflict of your story. And when that happens, take a look at through the characters that you used to have think about which ones would fit best, and throw them back in. Yeah, but I guess my point is that it, you're, you're right in that um, you can't, you can't uh, force them in, but I think it's just as bad to force a character out if they're a part of the natural weave of the world. I, I think that, that has weave. just as much a, a detrimental effect. Well, you don't have to, th you know, on screen throw them out. Right. But I've I've often found that if a character is that superfluous, they can just fade into the background without much impact. Mm -hmm. And that's I guess that would be another litmus test is 
if you could just keep writing without them and no one would go, wait, what happened to Bob? Then Bob is unnecessary. <laughs> well, I, I think just... that you can have, like, because people would ask, like, wait, what happened to, to Paco in this example? But if I was to go back and rewrite the story, um, a lot of the exact same events could have happened without Paco or Warren being present at all. They were introduced, they were made significant enough that people would miss them. But ultimately, I think this is where doing uh, main character exercises has value. And I think that I would put a litmus test less to, does the character have something to do? I would actually focus it even further and say, does the character have something to do with the main character? Or characters? Because if right. they're disconnected from the main characters, then it's really hard to give them relevance. Or do they have, are they connected to the theme? Yeah. Well, and I think that's what works out for you. I know you're really struggling with this in Ley Lines. Like, how do, how do we shoehorn these characters back in? Hmm. I guess, yeah, for, for, for me it's that idea, it, it, my litmus test isn't just do they have something to do. It's if they have something to do, that's, that's not good. In f because everybody has something to do. It's again, yeah. do they have something beyond what they do? Yeah. And but but I do like your. Is it connected to the main characters though? That is important. Or the central theme, but yeah. Yes. Um, I think that there is sort of a a way to rehabilitate a lot of characters that in, you end up discovering are sort of on the outside, because I keep having the need to add new characters, and what I'm realizing is that, um often instead of saying well how can i add a new character or how can i to, to to prompt a particular type of growth from a cast member instead to look at the existing cast that often will remain undeveloped because more and more unnecessary cast are being added in and say well how can i develop this person more how can i make this person more relevant so instead of adding new characters to create relevancy to take the characters that already exist and are probably being underserved by the complication and saying, can I do what I wanted to do with all these new things and new people and just do it with this person that I already have? And often the characters will surprise you. And that's what I meant by looking back and seeing what characters you have that will serve whatever new purpose you have in your plot. All right, let's focus on hopover detours. What kind of detours do you guys think relevant here what are the things that make you lose focus as a writer i think i one of the examples that i was thinking of for this i think kind of ties into this it's the the fun side track the the ultimately meaningless side quest that you put in either because it's interesting or because gosh you really need like 45 more pages to be a real novel length or 23 episodes a season is hard and filler episodes basically yeah and the ones that strike me that that i thought of when i when we were thinking about this was star trek mirror universe and holodeck episodes oh thank you i, I knew star trek was a good well to go to but for some reason i completely spaced out both of those things and i think they're perfect for this i it, if you haven't seen star trek um we're done leave no, um, <laughs> we say that on this show more often. <laughs> if you haven't seen this, 
go away. And the Moco <laughs> Expedition, alienating viewers. Since, well, uh, Star Trek will occasionally go to the holodeck where you can it a fantasy, a computer generated fantasy world where you can live any story you want, or the mirror universe where everyone is evil. The mirror universe started in the original Star Trek series, and it is where the idea that evil counterparts have goatees comes from. So if you've ever seen a, a, a TV show where an evil twin had a goatee, it's because of the mirror universe. And in Star Trek, the mirror universe started as this one-time kind of cool thing that then just... I don't even know how to describe it. It just... Wouldn't die. Wouldn't... No, yeah, it wouldn't die. I actually think that in this regard, Star Trek um, envisions a utopia-style f- uh, future in which no one has to murder their darlings. This I have is a yeah. confession to make. Oh, no. I kind of like holodeck and mirror episodes. Well, I like the them holodeck because they're like that miss, really but... horrible candy that you really shouldn't eat. And you know it's going to make you feel kind of crappy. But by God, you just really want that horrible cream frosting sometimes. You know it's bad for you. You know it gives you no nutritional value. You, it is you don't the have Twinkie to... of, the, of the Star Trek universe. You don't have to justify. Well, you can just unabashedly like something. I don't the thing. like them, but I enjoy them. Does that make any sense? Like, well, I guess I'm the same way with the Ferengi episodes, so... Oh, I, I unabashedly love the Ferengi yeah. episodes. But... Here's the thing about Mirror Universe and Holodeck episodes, though. They can be done right. Yeah. They can be done in a way that is to the benefit of the series. I like several Holodeck episodes, and I like the first Mirror Universe episode. It's just that too often they're done as filler, as an, an unneeded emotional break, or because you have good actors who want to chew the scenery. But my problem with the, especially the ones in Deep Space Nine, where there were like six episodes in the Mirror Universe, it has no weight and it has no impact and it's not used to tell us anything interesting about the characters. The holodeck episodes are at their best when, while it is a fluff episode, we are still getting to see deeper shades of the characters, and the characters are still learning and growing. There's a, a holodeck episode in DS9 where Cisco plays baseball and runs than his his crew as a baseball team against a douchey Vulcan captain and his crew. Mm-hmm. It's about a baseball game on a space station holodeck. It's not going to have long-term consequences, but there is still character growth that happens within Cisco as he learns to let go of his competitiveness with this captain for the good of his crew. And there's still growth on the part of the people that are playing versus a mirror universe episode where they go over, they blow some budget. Kira gets to sex it up. Uh, Worf gets to be angry. Garrick gets to be slimy and then nothing 
changes. I think yeah. Garrick being slimy is actually the only part that, that they're the reason that I secretly like them is mostly just Garrick. Yeah. I guess <laughs> Cause for me... it's just so it's so <laughs> over the top that it's kind of hilarious. I don't know. I think for me the uh I think it's interesting that the writers could view the holodeck as something that is uh a uh something that you can just it's a tool. You can you can run wild with it, and you can tell any story you want there. But when it comes to the mirror universe, it's almost it, it's it's the opposite. It's very limiting. It's you can tell one kind of story in the mirror universe, and it's it's how super dark, angsty the world would be if everyone was a jerk. And uh, I actually think that that it's been a huge wasted opportunity. Um, but what they should have done with the mirror universe is the idea that since everybody's such a paragon in the regular universe, if in the ev- uh, the alternate universe, instead of your counterpart being evil, which is you know what everybody is, is your counterpart is significantly more moral and better than you are, that would have been fascinating in the Star Trek world. Yeah, I guess that that is one thing that I think really undermines a lot of the uh, other world episodes is that. I think when you have alternate universe kind of narratives, the most value that you have out of a lot of them is that you get to see, you know, if, if one little thing had been different for this person, uh, what would have happened? There was a comic that I used to read that I loved a phrase from it, which was um, the only difference between a hero and a villain is one really bad day. And the mirror universe could have potentially been, well, what if, all of the people that you know had that one really bad day. You know, would, would some of them still be heroic? Would others have changed? And the mirror universe, you don't really look at it and go, oh yeah, I totally could see how these characters could end up in this place. Yeah. It's just that they're, they're so cartoonish in their portrayal that you just, you look at it and you just don't, you don't believe any of it, really. Well, and my other... That you touched on one of my other problems with the DS9, especially Mirror Universe, is I can buy some of the same people still being there, even with radically different circumstances. But by the time you're 300 years later, 200 years later, whatever, and all of the same people still exist not one of them is like not not one character played by one of the main actors they ever go like no we never heard of that dude they all still exist and they all have the same relative importance yeah it's like oh cisco he's he's still a captain you know he's still He's still a guy, an important guy calling shots. Ish. Um, I mean, they killed him off off screen in between the first and second Mirror Universe episode. They did. I actually like that they did that. I I actually, I was, the uh, episode where um, in in TNG, this is totally now completely, hey, did you watch Star Trek Uh, thing? But in the next generation Picard, there's an episode where Q kind of lets Picard go back and change a lot of who he was as a young kid. And then flashes him back to the present. 
And instead of being this really important guy that took all these risks and made all these huge decisions, he's like this this sort of wimpy nobody that everyone's sort of like, I don't think you're really cut out for uh, command ever. Like, we're not even going to give you an opportunity to try. And this is the future and the Federation where we're very much like, follow your dreams, but like, except for you, Picard. You just... I don't think I don't think you're cut out for that in your lifetime, and it just—I think that would actually is a much more interesting and compelling mirror kind. It's a mirror universe without being a mirror universe, where they they really ask that those kinds of questions about what kind of personality do you have and what do these moments really mean, and they explore that, and they really really change who you are. So. Anyways, right, and that's a, that's an example of one of these kind of bottle episodes that exploring other things done well because Picard is a different person at the end of that than he is going in. He's resolved this internal hitch that he's had that we can say even if he's never expressed it it fits in enough with his character that we can see it having been there the whole time mm -hmm. and he's gotten over it. Yeah. I find it hilarious that in the episode that's talking about focus, we are all over the place. <laughs> well, no, I think this is important. One of the detours that this rule says you can hop over is these flights of fancy. And it's really, really easy to kind of get into a cul-de-sac in your story and, and, uh, and, uh, kind of get lost off on a what if uh, uh, an elsewhere tale if you will the benefit here is that uh, particularly if you're working on a television show is if you need to fill up episodes nothing's off the table and those lights of fancy which you would normally cut from something like a novel or a film are an episode for you if you're doing a, a, a TV show I'm not necessarily saying that's a good thing and I've actually noticed that a lot of television particularly cable television totally does away with this kind of episode now and uh, refocuses and makes sure that everything kind of serves because they treat a season as a single arc and every episode is a building moment toward that. Uh, Robin and I are currently watching Orange is the New Black and even though some episodes will focus on other characters, uh, one thing that we noticed is that there's kind of an A plot and a B plot and in this prison where Piper Chapman is uh, uh, incarcerated, she has all the things that she's dealing with. She's the main character. But there's this entire side uh, story dealing with drugs and, and uh, a prisoner being lo in love with a guard that just she never even knows about. And um, the funny thing is, is that's not a plot cul-de-sac. That's not a detour. And it's not just chewing up time because that reinforces the main theme of the show which I think we decided was that basically prison retards your life. Everything is on hold, uh, not just for the people inside, but for the people outside who are waiting for them as well. I think there's a lot of different themes that that show uh, oh, absolutely. explores. Also about truth, the truth of who you are and and, and what you are, I think is also mm -hmm. a major Confronting element yourself. of that show. Right, and I think that that's, I mean, we're still basically on topic even talking about this, is that a, it's not a detour if it is still advancing a plot, a character's development, or theme. Or it is not automatically a detour. It can still be clunky. It can still take time away and not be the best way of doing it. 
But if you look at a scene or you look at a at a at a, a section and you say this is not advancing either any of these three plot, theme, or character development, it's definitely something that you can trim. I think it, we also overvalue complication. We tend to, to, to say, oh, if something's really complex, then it must be sophisticated. But in general, I think that things that are simple, one, are often far more complicated than you think they are. And uh, two, have a lot more value than we often are willing to give them. I don't know why we value complexity over simplicity, but... I think that another warning sign is sort of if if the means by which you are attempting to accomplish something is highly complicated, then it's probably unnecessarily so. Well, I and, think. Oh, sorry. Uh, the way to get sorry. out of it may be to ask yourself: Is there a, what's the simplest way to do this? And I think the answer will often reveal itself. I think we view complexity as being more adult. I think we view simplicity as being more childish, that we're adults, so we should have complex, multi-layered stories, ignoring the fact that a good story is a good story, and that those great examples that we can look to of really interesting, deep, multifaceted stories are all, one still fit within the basic definition we went over a couple of weeks ago of a story structure and two are purposefully complex i.e. their complexity serves the story they are not complex for the sake of being complex mm -hmm. I think from my side it's uh, there, there's a trap in complexity which is uh, complexity takes effort and we always assume that effort means value. Just because it took a longer time and it took more thought and effort to make something makes, makes it inherently better. And that's not always the case, especially if you're cluttering things up. Um, Penny Arcade put it as, uh, uh, it's like ordering a pizza and getting a free walrus. It can be the greatest walrus in the world, but I don't need a walrus. And it's actually a big pain in the butt to get a free walrus. So I think that's it. It's a walrus would be very unique, and getting it to me would be complicated, but that doesn't mean it has value. Well, and I also think that it's untrue to think that simplicity is easy or doesn't require effort. In general, I find that complexity is what we default to naturally. But doing something simply and effectively and clearly often requires far more work to do than to do something in a complicated manner. Because if you're doing it in a complicated manner, chances are you haven't stopped to think about it all that much. And that's why it's complicated. Because it's needlessly complicated. Not purposefully simple. We praise simplicity for its elegance. We don't praise complexity for its difficulty. We praise someone who, who solves something complex or who completes something complex. But we don't praise the person who makes the complexity. And if your basic goal is to tell a story and you do so in a way 
that purposefully sets as many barriers between what you want to say and the person who you want to say it to, you are dooming yourself yourself to a a not great work or to a small audience or to just feeling good about how smart you are. Um, I think that this is another uh, detour you're talking about. There are a lot of stories that we've seen where uh, the writer will come up with a character that's smarter than the writer, and then after a short while, they don't know how to write for the character anymore. I call um, it the Death Note Syndrome. Death Note's that's a big one. That's where I first found it, because the first couple stories in Death Note are really intense and exciting and interesting and you're just like, oh, this is so great. And then you hit this point where suddenly it's like, you guys are making everything needlessly complicated to make yourself appear smart. Right. But instead you are actually making your characters appear stupid because they're getting in their own way so much. Or Spiral is another one. Both animes. Spiral's the big one for me. I think the first eight episodes of the uh, full 24, 26 episode season are wonderful. And then it quickly becomes clear that uh, the, the writing becomes recursive. In order to make the uh, reveals and the the uh, character look smarter, what they do is they up the complexity, but it's not actually more clever, it's just more. And and what that does is it is actually dilutes how intelligent the character looks. It dilutes everything. And at that point, you're not telling a story, you're telling a puzzle. And yeah. That's so hard to do. People like puzzles. They just don't like watching someone else maybe solve one, I guess. So. Well, especially if the puzzle is only difficult because someone because it's told themselves that it was. Yeah, right. because it's and obscured. This, a great example of this, I think... Well, I don't have a specific example beyond the ones that you guys have. Although, amateur Sherlock Holmes stories can fall into this. But if you look at a work and the solution that would be the fastest and the easiest is never even mentioned because they have to do it more complex for some not explained reason, you've made it too complex just so you can be smart. Except that it makes your characters look stupid. That's exactly. the, that's the well, thing. Is instead of making your characters practical. seem intelligent, it makes your characters seem like too stupid to get out of their own way. Which, if you're going for that, that's awesome. But yeah, if that's, that's never the case. That's one thing. You know, if it's if it's arrogance and they need to learn humility or something like that, that's one thing. But if it's like, look how smart they are. They solved this this really obscure thing, and it's like, but if they had just taken a step back and stopped talking in circles that they would have solved it immediately. I think Occam's razor applies to writing as well. You should think of the simplest solution to any problem you pose to your characters and then tell yourself uh, you, you, you better have a good reason why they don't do that and if you can't come up with a good reason why they don't do that, they better do that. Yeah. Well, and the, the nice thing though is that you can always like horror stories, bad horror stories, where you're shouting at the screen, don't go in there, you're an idiot. No one is surprised when someone dies in a horrible slasher film because they do everything that no one in their right mind would ever do. So you have no no feeling of stakes or regret that that person, you know, has bit the big one. It's almost always just, yeah, they had that coming. But... If they do everything in their power 
that you would do in their situation. Maybe even a few things you wouldn't have thought of. And things still go bad. Suddenly, not only have you been rooting for this person because you're like, dang, man, that's exactly what I would have done. But you're also going, holy cow, this is so bad. Because if if they did everything that a smart person would do and it still went south, you know that the stakes are high. So they're intelligent, but they're also screwed. So there are ways to actually take that simplicity and make it more complicated and make it more compelling as a result. Well, and that's the thing. The simple solution can still fail. Yeah, absolutely. You can, you can still have yeah just because it's the the obvious answer doesn't mean that in the world that you're at obviously most problems have other factors working at them we have you know if your story has a bad guy your bad guy can probably look at what he's doing and say well but if he just punches me in the junk my whole plan falls apart and invest in a cup <laughs> or just have a reaction you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Now, I, I'm not saying that you can't write a good story with a complex solution to something. And sometimes when those can be pulled off, there's a certain elegance and joy to that process. Kind of like um, a Rube Goldberg device. There's no real, like, reason to have a Rube Goldberg device do something. The beauty is is in its complexity. And you can write stories that way that are really fun and enjoyable. Um, but I think that there's a lot to be said for simplicity that we don't give stories enough credit for. So well, and I, I really like the Dresden Files and the Codex Alera. I've been listening to Alera all the way back through on audiobook now. Hmm. He's got a, Butcher writes plans really well. Butcher writes things where everybody's got an agenda and everybody is trying to plan at one another. And, but never does it in a way that makes it feel like he's purposefully making things complex. So I guess uh, from my perspective, we were talking about how they've got these detours. So, is that your solution to a detour? Uh, simplicity? All, well, as with everything, I think it's, um, to me, the, the solution is to have it have a purpose. Yeah. To have it have a purpose and to portray it as elegantly as possible. And elegance can be complex, but elegance is far more often simple if your detour is talking about a character it's for a character to grow present them with the situation they need to confront have them confront it and have them grow from it don't put it under 15 other layers don't bury it in seven other subplots if you can't keep all of those things going at once if if all you need to accomplish from this detour on the island is to show what your character does when he doesn't have access to his magic pants, then just do it. I think a lot of it is also um, keeping in mind the purpose in terms of each piece. 
and I'm thinking in terms of um, screenshots and the the different purposes of different screenshots in film and in in comic panels um, because I've been studying this a lot lately and how the different levels of zoom in essentially have different purposes in the film world on a, a storytelling level that underlies the visuals. So if you have that big establishing shot, that is to tell you the context in which the characters are interacting. If you have a mid-level shot, it's to give you uh, how the characters relate to other people within the shot and their environment. If you have a close-in shot, especially an extreme close-up, it's a very simple moment because you can only see their face, but it's, it has several purposes. And one is so that you very clearly understand the emotion of that moment if it's on a person. And if it's on an object, it is to basically tell the audience, hey, audience, this object has importance. Either this is how it works or it will matter in the future or something along those lines so that it is a, a subtle cue so that when you are doing and we, we've been trained to understand these intuitively because of you know experiencing television and film that uses this uh, enough so that if you start using it yourself you can choose when to use close-up panels or close-up shots depending on you know tv comic whatever and give that audience a subtle little little hint that, hey, this moment, this line of dialogue, this object means something. And you should pay attention to it, even if you're not doing so consciously. And so I think that keeping in mind the purpose of the shot or the moment or the item that underlies what you are doing helps create a more focused, more complete story. I think for me, uh, hopping over detours is about consequences. Um, I, pretty much what you were saying earlier about having an equal and opposite reaction. When, when things are reacting to each other again and again and again, the plot takes care of itself. And I think that's uh, really, really important uh, when, you're, when you're telling a story that's serialized or you're trying to reinforce a theme over a long period of time is to have one thing lead to the next. So whenever you're running into a detour like a flight of fancy or you're you're having these uh moments where you want to make something more complex all you need to do is say okay boil it down to its simplest thing make an outline this just happened what is the most important thing that happens in reaction to that that would be uh my advice all right do we want to have our stuff in the middle do we want to talk about the fact that our stuff in the middle has been increasingly become the end the stuff at the end stuff at the end it really has I don't think that's a bad thing, though. I don't think it's a bad thing either. I just think it's increasingly amusing that we call it stuff in the middle. Yeah. Stuff in the well, it becomes the middle in that it is framed by the end. Well, we say <laughs> we say middle. That's a great reach for it there. <laughs> we, we 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 start the stuff in the middle in the middle, and it's long enough that it gets us to the end. Yeah. See. Hey. That, what what other purpose for the middle is there? Right. Everything else was the beginning. I just, I worry that it will become our mirror universe. <laughs> <laughs> so, inspirations. Um, for me, I've been prepping all the uh, the Kickstarter stuff, getting everything ready. 
and I've been reaching out to a lot of different people asking if they would help us with our stretch goals. Um, because what we're trying to do is that every stretch goal, uh, for people that aren't familiar with what Kickstarter uh, kind of does, is there's a baseline goal that you have to hit in order to get any funding at all. And beyond that, people have kind of put into a practice a, what's called a stretch goal, which is thinking about, well, if we get overfunded, where will that money go? And having a plan for it. So for ours, what we're going to do is that we're going to improve the book quality, its paper and its cover and its UV gloss and, and kind of keep upgrading the book. But we also wanted something fun that people could be sort of uh, help grow beyond just the book getting better. And we're putting together something called Dream Eaters Totally True, I Swear, Trickster Tales from a whole bunch of different contributors. And I was just really uh, encouraged and honored with how many people responded to my question um, with, with a yes, um, with an enthusiastic willingness to help. And a lot of them are just people that I have formed uh, connections with over the years that I've been doing comics. And it's just really uh, a really great feeling to know that there are so many people that are willing to take time out of their, their lives to um, essentially volunteer to help. Um, and Matt's one of them. So I guess yeah. you're included in my, uh, my inspirations for this, uh, for this week. I just, and the answer of where the extra money goes to is me. No, yeah. Uh, but if, if we get high <laughs> enough, there's this, there's only so many, like if we put the paper quality too high, it just becomes a brick. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a limit to how much you actually want paper quality to be improved on the inside of a book. So at the very high levels, then it's just we're going to uh, give the give give thanks back to the people that are contributing and give everybody who's helping bonuses. So I, I, I like the idea that at one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, all physical copies of the book will be delivered by an elderly French master paper crafter who will lay individual <laughs> pages down on your desk one by one while you gaze upon them and wonder and caviar. I should add that one in. That's a that sounds inspired. And then add a note. Nah, at this level we're just going to pay off our student loans. <laughs> <laughs> For me, uh, when I was at Denver Comic Con two weeks ago, uh, the one one of the few purchases I allowed myself was a new game called Mobile Frame Zero, which is a tabletop uh, miniatures war game. Except that, uh, and I've been burned by this in the past, where I'll buy into a game and. It's by a startup company, and they go under, and you can't find the models anywhere. Well, this one had a very clever solution to that, which is you build all of your own models from your Legos at home, uh, which is awesome. Um, and kind of got me into my Legos again after hours of, of separation from them. And... <laughs> I know. It's really a tragic... <laughs> Tragic departure for you. Right, right. Well, uh, me and my friend Kenton had our first game last night with checking out the new system, and it was an interesting, fun game. But the thing that kind of uh, surprised me most about it was his wife uh, of five years, Amanda, had never played with Legos in her life at age 26. Wow. So that surprised me. And instead of, uh, for, for a lot of the uh, uh, evening, instead of like, oh, we're going to play our, our adult war game with our Legos, it was, we're just going to be kids again and play with Legos for like an hour and a half. And uh, I guess the thing that inspired me was uh, kind of this, I, I realized the game had fooled me into thinking Legos could be an adult thing if they were recontextualized. 
as as something adults are into. And I realized I didn't need that, me personally. I can just play with my Legos and have fun. But I was inspired by that idea that something old is new again, just by changing your perspective on it. And, I don't know. It was kind of neat. Um, this week, my inspiration has largely actually come uh, from the internet, uh, which is a strange thing to say. But the the biggest things for me that have been inspiring me this week are I'm looking at it and next week from this recording, which is the first week in July slash last day of June, since the podcast doesn't go out immediately, um, I'm all of a sudden just going to have a shitload of stuff out there or potentially out there. On Monday, it's the deadline for the short story contest that I'm submitting to. On Tuesday, my new project, uh, Border Kansas, launches. So by the time you read this, should have several days' worth of content up. Go check it out! Uh, in the next couple of weeks, the kick uh, Robin and Corey's Kickstarter will launch, and I am going to be submitting a short story for the base edition of the Trickster's Tales. And sometime, if they ever send me the frickin' contract, I'm going to have... Uh, something in a actually published RPG book. So I have gone from nothing out there in the world to suddenly feeling like I'm actually putting content out into the universe. And it, it, it's been very inspiring to, to keep doing this and to keep taking those little steps to get me closer to the mountain, like uh, Neil Gaiman said. I find that creativity is a muscle that once you exercise it, it becomes easier and easier to exercise it. It, it Creativity begets creativity. The issue is just starting it. Yeah. It's, well, yeah. I, it, it's amazing to just look at and to see. I've gotten to see the preview for the Kickstarter, which should be launching about the time this podcast goes up. Yeah. And just to see my name listed as, you know, contributors include blah, 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 blah. And Matthew Parker and sit there and go, holy shit, I'm contributing something to something. Thou art a contributor of things. I am, I am a contributor of things. I am making contributions. That's a cool feeling. Yeah. I mean, the only, and that's, it's far and away, the only other thing inspiring me this week uh, is the fact that I'm looking out at the world and seeing people launching stupid lawsuits and going as an attorney i will always be able to find something to do because these people are dumb and i can beat them <laughs> that's slightly less motivational than the other thing you said <laughs> and, but you know whatever, it, whatever it's whatever less whatever keeps you going man it how, might be less roll out lofty of the bed in the morning. Yeah. but looking out at the world of stupid lawsuits and going I could fight those. It still, it gives you, you know, it gives you a good feeling in your heart. <laughs> okay, who's up to today's challenge? Well, I guess it has to be me and somebody else, so. Yeah. I haven't do done one? one with you since the very first one. So it's probably you guys and I will uh, topic you. And we're back to the beginning of the rotation. That's right. Three people have gone to the bar to celebrate something. Without revealing what that something is directly, create a scene in which 
one character is the primary recipient of the celebration, one person is genuinely happy for them, and the third person is jealous. As before, if you'd like to try your hand at writing your response to this spontaneous prompt, feel free to pause the recording right now, give yourself 10 minutes on the clock, and write the best opening sequence you can. We'd love to read your responses, so feel free to email them to info at mocopress.com, and we'll share the ones that we get on the air. You can also go to the Moco Press website, click on the page for this podcast, and post your responses in the comments below. Thanks so much, and we look forward to seeing your solution to this opening scene. at least try to smile. She managed a half-hearted smirk and clinked bottles with her brother, Will, looking out over their celebratory picnic spread. I did it. Ta-da! She said, waggling her fingers before blowing her bangs out of her face for the umpteenth time. He shoved her good-naturedly and dug into the cooler at her feet, the ice more water now than anything else. We're happy for you, right, Fran? He tossed a can of soda to their youngest sibling, Francis, who was sitting on the edge of the blanket. Francis barely caught the can, fumbling it around before replying curtly. Yeah, definitely. He threw the pop back at Will, who barely got his hand up in time to block it. The rejected beverage bounced off his palm and splooshed back into the cooler. Will made a face. Yeesh, that'll be a fun one to open. It'll be a great big surprise, just like Jane's announcement, Francis replied, lying back to stare at the sky. Guess I'm drinking beer from here on out, then. You would have done that anyway. Hey, it's a celebration. I am celebrating in the traditional rituals of my people. Jane rolled her eyes, picking at the crumbs of her sandwich. Deep down, she was pleased at how things had turned out. Her eyes flicked flicked over to where Francis lay, squinting hard at the sun. But the sooner they moved on from it, the better. And scene. (laughs) I like the dialogue. It feels very real. Yeah, definitely. I think the sibling dynamic comes across very quickly. Go. I get that you don't get it, Mary said with a shake of her head. She leaned against the bar as the bartender poured a double of scotch. But we're here to celebrate. Can't you just be happy for me? She asked as she took the glass of Johnny Walker. For once? Harumph, Larry harumphed unconvincingly. It was, Mary reflected, one of the most unconvincing harumphs she had ever heard. And with Larry as a friend, she had quite a catalog to reflect on. The bar around them was quiet, subdued even. It was almost sad on a Friday night for a bar to be this quiet with this much Yanni on the speakers. But it was comfortable, and the prices were good, and they had a regular seat at the bar. Come on, man, John said with a laugh as he lifted his glass, a match to Mary's drink in honor of the win. It's not every day you get to see something like that. Man, the look on his face, John positively hooted with laughter before so thoroughly sucking down the glass of scotch that he probably should have bought it a drink first. I just don't get it, Larry repeated for perhaps the fifth time. Or the hundredth, Mary thought with a sigh as she looked down at the bruised knuckles holding her glass. How can you put yourself out there like that? She shrugged one aching shoulder. It was wrenched, and she was afraid she'd dislodged it at first. It makes me feel alive. It makes me feel strong. It's fun as hell, and it intimidates weedly little accountants like you. Larry rolled his eyes. But Mary had seen him while he was watching, seen the gleam in his eye. 
It was inside him too, like it was in her, that need for physical expression. John just liked the parties and the general adrenaline rush, but Larry, he was in denial. We're all accountants. Not all of us are also, he began, before Mary put a hand over his mouth with a laugh. Don't say it out loud. Half the office is here tonight. I don't want them to know, not yet, she said with a sigh. It's not something we really do, us mild-mannered office nobodies. She gave him a fierce grin. But I bet you'd like it if you put on the gloves. Larry looked hungry for a moment before he shook his head. A lifetime of people telling him not to reach for more, dream for more, or be something out of the ordinary settled back into place to lock away that aching need to be himself. It was like watching an entire lifetime of standardized tests and performance reviews happening all at once. I don't know. I just, yeah, yeah, John said. You don't get it. But Mary looked, and she knew. He did. And maybe someday she'd get him to go with her. But for tonight, there was scotch, a bar of unsuspecting accountants, her friends, and a well-earned victory. And at least until she had to sit in tomorrow's quarterly meeting with an almost broken tailbone, life was good. I really like how uh, you played around the, uh, the celebration topic. I'm going with MMA fighter. Yep, that was exactly what I thought. Awesome. Yeah, that was really, really well done. It came across without you directly saying it. You even played with the not directly staying it, saying it thing. I liked it a lot. Yeah, I really enjoyed the the lyrical quality of a lot of your lines. The uh, the bit about he slurped the drink down and <laughs> should have bought it a drink, or the description of the bar. Um, Yanni. Yeah, the Yanni is a great touch in there. Mm-hmm. It was the saddest possible thing I could think for a bar to be playing on a Friday night. For a bar to be playing on a Friday night, yeah. The most accountant thing I could think of. (laughs) Or um, the the standardized testing locking into place is another great... uh, It's not exactly a metaphor, but it's a description. It's a means of describing something, and it a very effective one. Um, I just really enjoy how you how you play with words to to create not only a, a vivid image but also a feeling well thank Cause you i immediately have this reaction to standardized testing more so now <laughs> that i'm that i'm actually in the school system on the other end and have to administer it and go this is such a joke oh yeah i i've always joked that the best thing that ever happened to my little brother as compared to me and andrew was that mom became a teacher because then all of a sudden, the things we complained about that that she kind of said, no, it can't really be that bad. She's there. And it's like, no, this is really This is bold. really Worse bad. Than, than advertised. Yeah. It's <laughs> – he gets a lot more understanding, I think, just because she – I mean, when you're not there, you don't see it. You don't understand. And, of course, you know, when your 16-year-old is saying, oh, man, school sucks – well, every 16-year-old says school right. sucks. But it's different to go in and be like, oh, man, it really does. This Quantifiably system is sucks. broken. <laughs> ah, I see now. <laughs> there are legitimate concerns here. <sighs> I thought you both did really, really well on this one. I kind of threw you a curveball here, and I thought that you both knocked it out of the park. No, well, we I actually really... played it straight. No, no clown yeah. sex appeared at I any know. point. <laughs> and uh, 
vegetables were left unnamed. Well, and I, part of my goal was, I I came up with I, I wanted to come up with something. What are what are they celebrating that would be slightly out of the ordinary? Mm-hmm. Okay, a knockout in an MMA fight. And how do I how do I still play with expectations with that? Yeah. Well, let's have some fun with gender roles because the first the first version in my head was a guy in an MMA fight, and then the woman saying she didn't get it. And I thought, no, that's a little too that that's too obvious. It's funny because you and I went through a similar thought process because I was originally like, well, who should be, you know, who should be the victor? And I was like, it's always, you know, like some guys, yay, got a big promotion or something. And then yeah. I was like, okay, let's, let's make it a girl. But then I wanted it to be somewhat gender balanced. So I put in the guy and then, then I was like, well, who should be the jealous one? And I was like, it's always the woman, the catty yeah. bitches. Exactly. It's, and exactly. so I was like, well, you know what? Fine. I'm not going to have the catty one be a girl i'm gonna have it be this petulant brother who's pissed sure so yeah i don't know if that's it's one of sometimes when you try to avoid cliche you end up running directly into the arms of another one but well no but i mean it's it, i i thought very that that was almost exactly my thought process very similar i didn't want to have the complainer be the the only woman because that's how it always goes mm-hmm. the shrewish so, voice of reason the shrewish right. voice of reason, yeah. Exactly. And I'm so societal norms. Right. And so yeah, and I, I actually I like this little snapshot of people. I don't know what the rest of the rest of their lives are, but I actually really like this little snapshot of of people of these characters, even though I picked just about the most generic names possible. Yeah. And I Mine are Jane, Will, and Francis is about the yeah, because I wanted Mar- something that someone could sort of make fun of. Mary, Larry, and John, and I only I realized as I was reading it for the recording that I named one of the dudes after the frickin' Scotch. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they are meant to be. Maybe he doesn't have to buy them a drink. They're already married. Yeah, he is, go. in fact, Johnny Walker. <laughs> That's right. Manifestation. Of the liquor he's consuming. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that would fly. Like, <laughs> I think I told you about the time when my dad went to uh, called up Child's Bakery for a cake, and and it was like, "Hey, I need a cake tomorrow." The and they're like, we're really, "We're really backed up. Uh, I don't know if we can have it by tomorrow. Uh, what's your name, Mister Childs?" Yes, we'll have that immediately for you, sir. Just call back. Like, I don't think that would work the same way in a bar. Where like, I'd like, I'd like a, I'd like a, a scotch. Oh, hey, who do you think you are? I'm Johnny Walker. <laughs> oh, well, here, have all the scotch. Of course, Mr. I, Walker. <laughs> you know what? I bet that at the right bar, I, you know, I, I you know, I, I need a, a, sh- a glass of Johnny Walker Black. Oh, we're almost out, man, and we're saving it. No, you have to give it to me. Who do you think you are? I'm Johnny Walker. Show me your bleeping ID. If you can whip it out, if you can drop nut and put down an ID on the table that says Johnny Walker, Walker, comma, Johnny, there are bars that would go, well played, and pour you the damn drink. Sure, sure. And I've been to bars like that, um, which is great if your name's Johnny Walker or you just decided to get a fake ID with the name of a popular Scotch brand. <laughs> are you which saying be... that we shouldn't go do that? Well, we <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and if that doesn't fly, then I whip out my real ID. <laughs> I'm Johnny Walker, and this is my friend Jim Beam. That's right. And Jose. <laughs> jig might be up at that point. This is Jose Cuervo, but he still <laughs> likes scotch. Don't, don't. This is Jose Cuervo. <sighs> and that's the captain over there. Yeah, this is my friend. No, no, and you've got a dude in army yep. fatigues with the name patch that says Morgan. Yep. And the captain's bar. And he ha- awesome. constantly walks around with one leg up as if it's on a stool. And then when you ask why, he says, it was an IED, jackass. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is a suddenly a very complex, wow. very surreal. Like, I'm waiting for like a fifth wheel guy to be named Blue Label. <laughs> 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 Uh, and this is why we're not allowed back in certain bars. That's right. <laughs> because because we have elaborate costumes in order to get free drinks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think really we're on we're okay when it's just if you can whip out the IDs for the first two, but then Captain Morgan with the leg injury, and yeah, this is my friend Blue Blue Label. Uh, that's when we might the wheels might come off, Mr. Label. Con, yeah, Mr. Label. <laughs> uh, yeah, and our Please, friend, Mr. Label, is my father. Our friend, <laughs> and our friend from south of the border. <sighs> We're bad, oh. bad, bad, bad people. <laughs> I think it's good that we have this podcast so that people don't get a false impression that right. somehow we're better people than we actually this are. This podcast is basically our equivalent of a confession. Uh, having to register on a list so people know where we are at all times. Yeah. So, the takeaways on... Right. You know, the thing that we all came here to do. Um... Oh, My takeaway Lord. is Corey and I should not be allowed to construct elaborate plans. <laughs> ruses. They're called the ruses. ruses. Uh, okay, what was I going to say? Oh, um, okay. So my takeaway on this topic is uh, in terms of focus, in terms of consolidating characters and identifying your detours and hopping over them, I really feel like uh, the strategy that I will use in the future is to apply these litmus tests that we have both to characters and to any given scenes to kind of determine if I'm winging off, if I'm making something too complex, or if I'm, you know, I guess having a darling and going on a flight of fancy. So um, for me, it's that uh, by refocus, they mean simplify, and uh, by by consolidate, they mean just to have good economy and make sure everything is serving a purpose in your story. So. Yeah, for me, it's also to focus on purpose. <laughs> Um, and I would say also to to take a serious look at simplicity and learn to value it as much as complexity. Because I always overcomplicate myself. Um, and I would like to learn to value and to produce simplicity more often. I think, I say I think way too often. Damn it, it's like my catchphrase. Well, it's better than I know. Or, or some expletive um you better really and this has been my takeaway a couple of times now that you can do anything you want as long as you have a purpose to it there's obviously more to it because if it's crappily written or you use the same word 47 times in the same sentence then you'll still undermine it but you can 
do anything. You can go on a detour. You can have a holodeck episode. But it has to be for a purpose. And so long as there is a purpose that it is accomplishing within your plot, it has value. It might still be a darling. It still might need to be cut in the long run. But the most basic thing you have to look at for those scenes and those chapters and those whole sections is, is there a purpose that I'm accomplishing? So the key phrase seems to be purpose. That's our watchword. Yeah, I think we're all saying purpose, purpose, purpose. Mm-hmm. Good to know. All right, Matt, where can we find more of your work? You can find more of my work at the recently launched and hopefully by now insanely popular <laughs> Border Kansas at www.border-ks.com. And you can find more of my work at leylinescomic.com. If you would like to support volume three of Leylines, please check out the Kickstarter for it that is running right now. We would greatly appreciate your support. It's going to be a fantastic, beautiful, so exciting book. Um, and there's going to be a lot of extra cool goodies that you can get through that Kickstarter. So please check that out. Uh, you can also find our business at mocopress.com. And if you have enjoyed this podcast and you would like to get it early and hear our hilarious and bizarre blooper reels, please head over to patreon.com slash mocopress and subscribe at the $5 level to get all of those fantastic goodies. Thank you for listening and have a great evening or day or whenever you're listening. Be fantastic! <laughs> have a great everything. All the things. Music for this episode created by Reasoner. You can find more of his work at reasoner.newgrounds.com. <laughs>